0: You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. All right. Now, if you are married, could you raise your hand? If you're married, raise your hand. All right. All right. All the married folks say, whoop, whoop. All right. If you're single, raise your hand. All the single folks say, whoop, whoop. <laughs> it's like the married are like, yeah, the single like. Eh. All right. If you have a wedding ring, uh, hopefully you have it on. This is my wedding ring. I lost my wedding ring uh, six months after I was married. <laughs> and um, I was a youth pastor. And I remember the Sunday. We, I, I lost it. It was, uh, it was Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday. I think we, we had gone out after service and went out to this football field to play football uh, with some of the other young people. And uh, I took my ring off and I put it in my pocket. I don't know why. I just maybe I just wasn't used to wearing it, and it was kind of inhibiting my football skills. And um, well, by the time we were done playing, I couldn't find it in my pocket. Honey, guess what? <laughs> uh, we just had been married barely uh, five, six months, and and being in youth ministry, my wife's like, "No, you're not walking around without a ring." And uh, and we just got married, so we bought like this. This Walmart, you know, forty dollar cheapo band, and that was my band for a that was uh, for a couple of years, and then Nicole, for one of our anniversaries, actually bought me a new ring that was a replica, a, an identical replica of the one that we bought uh, for uh, our initial wedding band, and and I love it. I haven't lost it since. Woo, yeah, I haven't lost it since, and I wear it every day, and uh, it's been. It'll be. Uh, 27 years this November that we will have been married for the last two years. We thought we were still on 25, but lo and behold, we are actually two more years married. So 27 years this November, and and if you're single today, this will help you know what you're going to be getting into if you ever get married again. And if you don't plan on getting married again, then this will help you to kind of know how you can encourage and talk to those that are going through some difficult times. And if you're married, this will hopefully challenge you to up your game a little bit. We are going to be talking about three things today that uh, are kind of sensitive to talk about, and that is sex in marriage, uh, separation while you're in marriage, and the divorce of a marriage. So the Apostle Paul, man, in the book of Corinthians, he covers everything. And uh, this is a church. The church in Corinth was a church that was struggling to live for Jesus in a culture that was pulling them in all kinds of directions. They were dealing with tough issues. This one is especially a tough issue. Today is a PG-13 uh, message again. A few things are as sensitive as some of the things we're going to talk about today. And there are difference of opinions from Christians about these issues today. And, and we can disagree. This is, it's okay. These, even though I feel like the Bible is clear on these things, you might have a different take on them, and that's okay if you are a Christian, I mean, truly born again and a, and a follower of Jesus Christ. We can disagree, and I'll still uh, see you in heaven, I'm sure, um, because this is not a deal breaker when it comes to the kingdom. However, I think the Bible does speak on these issues through the Apostle Paul in chapter 7 uh, kind of clearly. Next week, we're going to talk to the single people. Paul, in one chapter, the first half, he talks about three tough marriage issues. And then he he talks to the single people and those that are single again. And, and he uses different words to describe single and single again. Um, to the single people, he calls virgins. And to the single again, he calls unmarried. And so you're going to kind of see that a little bit in, in, in these in these phrases and what he says. And so you kind of know who he's talking about. Those who have not been married, those who've been married, maybe a widow, or those that have been divorced. There's a lot that's said here today, a chapter that is easily isolated. Like there's a couple of verses in this in this chapter where entire ministries have been built over false interpretation of a single verse. And if there's anything that I can tell you today, it would be context, context, context. Context. Context when you read the Bible means that you follow a train of thought. That means it's not just sometimes the verse before or after, though that is part of the context. Sometimes it's the whole conversation that needs to be accounted for to understand what he's saying. It's easy to isolate parts of a passage and twist it, or to give you a false impression. But context, context, context means you begin the following. Have you ever walked into a conversation in the middle of it? Have you, anybody here ever walked into a conversation in the middle? Yeah, you walk into the conversation like you're somewhat kind of following a little bit, and sometimes you can then excuse yourself out of the conversation, and you might get a wrong impression of what was really talked about because you weren't there at the beginning and you didn't say to the end. This is the value of reading this chapter from the beginning of this part of conversation to the end, okay? Don't isolate verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says this, Now for the matters you wrote about. So first off, we know it's a brand new conversation. What he had been saying Previously, he was commenting on things he heard about. I heard that you guys were doing this, and I heard that you guys were doing this, and I heard about this. Now, he says, I'm going to respond to some of the things that showed up in a letter that you sent me. Some of them were comments, and some of them were questions. We don't have that letter that they sent to Paul. We have to piece together what they said in his responses. All right, so we're going to look at some of his responses and we're going to put together three, uh, three questions today, four total in this chapter that are based upon the things that he says. He's addressing things that he'd heard about before. Now he's addressing things that they wrote about. There's going to be four issues, three questions about marriage and one question about the single life versus being married. We have a very... Real relationship dilemma in our culture, in our country, and in our churches. Sex is glorified, marriage is mocked and belittled, and divorce is rampant. In church, for example, sex is taboo. You can't talk about it. But by the way, the Bible talks about it a lot. A lot. Are we just supposed to skip Those sections, are we supposed to ignore those sections? On average, the average parent does not talk to their kids about sex. They might have the initial awkward conversation and maybe a couple, maybe if you're, you know, brave, a couple follow-up conversations. But for the most part, guess where your kids, your young people are learning about sex? Television and music and school and culture. That's where they're learning about sex. Primarily, not from you, even if you have three or four conversations. It still is a small portion into the music and the television and the TV shows and the friends and the culture. Everything that's around them is thousands of messages and images and conversations and point of view. And your little five conversations, or or if you have five, Most parents don't even have the conversation. It's too weird. And churches never talk about it. But let's be honest, we're all thinking about it. Right now, today, you guys have already thought about it because that is how God programmed us. Paul's going to talk about it. Let's not make it taboo in, uh, in church. Sometimes also in church, single people are looked down on. Sometimes single people sometimes don't feel that they have a place to fit. And that somehow they're not as spiritual as maybe someone that's married, or that they don't have a role to play in the body of Christ because they're not married. And then sometimes in church, divorced people are looked down on. It's kind of interesting, in some churches, which is most churches, divorce is kind of like the end of your ministry, period. In some denominations... You can never preach. You can never lead a Bible study. You could never uh, lead a small group or teach a class. You definitely can't lead a ministry because you've been divorced. But if someone were, you know, born again and saved and set free and out of prison and was a mass murderer, let's give them a, a platform. Let's give them a small group. A former drug addict, hey, let's give them a Bible study. But if you're divorced, you're off the list. Somehow we have, we have made divorce... Like the worst sin imaginable in churches. Well, Paul's going to address that. I think that's a travesty upon a large group of people, especially since 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And they, uh, 49% of those happen within the, the first 12 years. All right, so you have a really big problem. So let's take a look at a snapshot. Some of these stats are from Christianity Today magazine, Sex, Marriage, and Singles. Um, The past 35 years, single female households have risen 65%. Single men households has risen 120%. That means there are more single people, single households, and single adults, single families single-parent homes than ever before, all right? Fewer than half of all households are married. Fewer than half. That is amazing. That means it's almost, you know, it's like uh, 60-40. If 40% or 45% are now single-family households, the majority of families that are married is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's been said that the, the health of a nation mirrors the health of a family. So you're going to see a culture, if you look at ancient cultures, their demise, even the great cultures like the Roman culture, their demise was the fall of the family uh, primarily. And then it, as it rippled down through every area of their life. of marriages end in divorce, and I contest that only one uh, out of two are happy in the couples that are together. So if you have four couples, uh, two of them will get divorced, and the other two will stay married. But of the other two that are married, I I contest, and what I see is only one out of two are happy. Because you have uh, a lot of those, they're not happy They're not intimate. Uh, They're sometimes living in separate bedrooms. They're there for convenience. It's their financial. Maybe you have a, a parent and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or a grandparent. You know exactly what I'm... They're roommates, but not lovers anymore. So, out of four couples, on average, one is happy. That's a big problem, all right? Age of marriage in 1970. The average age that women got married in 1970 was 21. For men, it was 23. Today... The average age is 26 for women and 28 for men. And as a result, this is, this will, this is an eye-opener. As a result, 90% of all adults have sex outside of marriage or before marriage. 90%. That means if you're a single person and you're in this room, there's a 90% of you are probably sexually active. All right? That's in, of those that are married, here's an even big, a bigger shock. 60% of women and 70% of men have confessed to having an adulterous affair in their marriage. What? Now, you think, well, it's going to be different in church. It's not. 80% of Christians are having sex outside of marriage. 80%. It's not much better. It's broken. Culture and church is failing at this. Today, Paul deals with three hot issues, a sex issue, a separation issue, and a divorce issue. Keep in mind, this is important, Paul was once married. He is currently single. We know he was married because he was a Pharisee, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin court. If you were a Pharisee, and he called himself a Pharisee, a Pharisee, and he was a Sanhedrin, it was vital that you were married. He was married in order to have been a Sanhedrin member or a Pharisee. At the time, he would have had to have been married. We don't know what happened to his wife. He doesn't talk about her, but we do know that he would have had to have been married at one point. There is actually an implication in this chapter that his wife might have died, or some believe that she left him when he became a a believer. We don't know. He doesn't talk about it. But we do know. Actually, in another chapter, he does mention that he's thinking about getting married again. Uh, Not in Corinthians, but in another letter. When he says uh, uh, that the apostles and myself included uh, should be able to get married if we want. And and because they were condemning him for for wanting to be married. That's a whole other chapter. But Paul, here's the point. He has been married and he is now single again. And so he's been single, married, and single again, so he knows how to relate. He knows how to talk, and he knows how to connect, and he's an apostle who knows each one of these independently. He knows what it means to be a single adult, and the challenges that come with that. He knows what it means to be married and to have the challenges of that. So here's the first question. The first question that comes up is a question about sex. It's a sex question. Keep in mind, Corinth uh, Rome in general was a sexually charged culture uh, what sexual immorality was rampant There were sex temples dedicated for the sole purpose of sex activities as part of worship to goddesses. Polygamy was a big part of their culture. Men could have more than one wife. Wives were not allowed to have more than one husband. Adultery was common for men. Adultery was not allowed for women. It was so much not allowed for women that if a woman committed adultery, the husband had permission to kill his wife, or if his daughter had sex outside of marriage, the father had permission to kill his daughter. But the husbands, it was pretty common. In fact, those sex temples, like for instance in Corinth, in the Aphrodite temple on the Chronopolis, had over a 1,000 prostitutes at one time. It was pretty common for men to go up there and, and have sex whenever they wanted to, but women were never allowed ever to have sex outside of marriage. In fact, most women got married when they were 12 to 14 years old in the Roman culture. As soon as they hit puberty, they were uh, encouraged and, and predetermined and put into a marriage. If you were in nobility, you got married younger. If you were poor, you got married as an old person at 14 and 15. This is the Roman culture, sexually charged, all right? there were, uh, I'm sorry, they were and we are instructed by God, and Paul really laid this out in the last chapter, that God has designed sex to be inside of marriage. And he said very clearly, do not have sex outside of marriage. He repeats this in many of his other letters. So they thought, listen to this, so here's these new Christians, some of them thought, Well, if sex outside of marriage is inappropriate, then maybe sex in general is inappropriate. So they began to write to Paul this phrase, and it says this. Now, for the matters you wrote about, in quotations in the NIV, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some paraphrases actually translate this incorrectly. Because they imply that Paul is saying it is good for a woman or for a man not to have relations with a woman. But what he is doing, he's saying, let's talk about what you wrote about. You wrote about that a man should not have sexual relations with a woman. NIV, I think, correctly puts quotations because he's saying, you said this. This is not something Paul said. And we know it's not something Paul said. Keeping the Bible in context, this would never, ever mean that Paul is promoting full abstinence from sex because this would contradict God, this would contradict the Bible, and this would contradict Paul in his other letters and in this letter itself. We're going to talk about that in a second. And it was against Roman law to be single for an extended amount of time. There was a law at the time that... Penalized and could potentially put you in jail if you were celibate for an extended amount of time. In fact, they discouraged celibacy and, and uh, singleness so much that when you were divorced, you had 18 months to get married or you would be taxed into poverty. And if you were too poor to pay your taxes, you were put into jail. So they made it illegal to be single and to be celibate, because they were trying to build and promote and increase the numbers of the Roman Empire. So Paul would never, ever say something that contradicted God or was against the law. That quote is the matter that they wrote about. That is the issue. The question is, is it good for a person to abstain from sex In all sexual relationships, in all manners. So here's the real question that Paul begins to answer. Should a Christian be abstinent in marriage is the big question. Why ask that? Well, in Corinth, some thought they were more spiritual in their sexual liberty outside of marriage. Paul addressed that in chapter 6. And then some thought they were more spiritual to never have sex at all, even in marriage. He's going to talk about it here in chapter 7. And some were getting arrogant about being married, and some were getting arrogant about being single. And he addresses this later in chapter 7 as well. Paul explains that all these are Satan's plan to divide us. So Paul's answer is no. Do not be abstinent. If you're married, okay. So look at what he says. He says, You've said, or it is wrote you wrote about that it's good for man to have sexual to not have sexual relations with a woman. But he says, But since sexual morality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Everybody say should have. You should, all right, with his own wife, and each woman with her own. Husband, He's referring to Genesis, God's original design for marriage, God's original design for sex. By the way, this is also a very strong anti-polygamy position. Because through this whole chapter, he references your single husband, and not like singles and not married, but the only one husband and only one wife. All these references to husbands and wives are singular. That means in a culture that promoted polygamy... He leans back to Genesis where God didn't say, Adam, you're lonely. I'm going to give you three women. He said, Adam, you're lonely. By the way, Adam was lonely and God didn't give him just a buddy, a guy, a best friend, someone to chum around with. He gave him a wife. He gave him a best friend and a woman. And he didn't give give him two or three because then it would have been Adam who was sinning first. (laughs) Just a joke. I thought, man, what a situation that would have been. There was polygamy in the Old Testament, but not because God promoted or condoned it. Throughout the Old Testament, God took a position on it, and Paul is declaring it here, going back to Genesis. One man, one woman. To the question, is it more spiritual to never, ever have sex, his response is, heck no. No, sex is God's design, not a dirty word. Stop treating sex like it's dirty. It's not. God designed with us uh, sorry, designed us with a body that has these desires. Understand this: sex is not a dirty word. It's something God created. God was not surprised when it first happened. He didn't go, Adam and Eve, enjoy each other. What <laughs> you know? He's just like, what is going? On? I didn't see that. Whoa, you know. No, in fact, God saw Adam alone and said, "It's not good." And then He put Adam and Eve together. And at the end of the day, He said, "That's good. That is good." He designed it. He uh, organized it. It is God given. God created. God made, and God declared good. In fact, the first three commandments of the Bible are this. The first one is get a job. It's, it's Adam, work the garden. Get a job. The second one was don't eat the fruit of that tree. Live a holy life. And three, multiply. Go have lots of sex. The big three commandments of Genesis are get a job, live a holy life, have sex with your wife. That, those are the commands. The big three Before the law was presented, that is what God gave Adam to do. Some Christians in Corinth, however, were calling it dirty. Just like some people who are religious today. Some of you today are already cringing at this topic and idea. It's just kind of weird. Well, it is kind of weird, but it's it's God-given. It's God-created. It's God-designed. Generations, because church is not talking about it and parents are not talking about it, generations of people are learning as they go, and they're making a lot of mistakes. Just look at the stats. The way that we're doing it now is not working. So let's look at verse 3. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Uh, I like how the King James says it, um, fulfill his marital duty. He says, affection do her. A husband should fulfill the affection do her it's not just sexual acts it is affection it is a uh, an act of love and grace and patience and mercy he goes and likewise the wife to her husband mutual responsibility to each other in this area again we're talking specifically about sex in marriage the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband Again, husband singular, wife singular, not husbands. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife, singular wife. I guess, uh, he says, uh, my, when I read this, I think, well, I guess you better ask your wife before you get that tattoo because that body doesn't belong to you. You know, like, like I, when some guys say, man, I want to get like a star right here. I'm like, what's your wife say? That's her body. You know that that doesn't belong to you anymore. This is this is before you decide what hair color you want to change your hair to, ladies, or or you know how you want to you know present yourself, guys. Listen, we belong to each other. My, I belong to my wife. My wife belongs to me. And uh, you know I'm sorry, wife. This is what you're stuck with. You know. But this is how God designed it. It's a mutual responsibility to each other. So here's the second answer. Should a Christian be absent in marriage? No. If you're married, you should be intimate with your spouse. You should be. You should be. You need to be. Intimacy is an important part of marriage. In fact, intimacy has three roles. It has the role of procreation, protection, and pleasure. And God designed sex to be something that reproduces life through procreation, through having babies. But he also designed it for protection, to keep us uh, from falling into temptation. For to keep us from cheating, to keep us straying outside of that relationship, and for pleasure, he does, it, We're not robots. He didn't say, "All right, guys, this is how it works." This is, and they didn't go, "Ooh, gross!" You know, he's like, "This is how it works." You guys, figure it out. You're gonna have a baby. You do that a lot, and you're gonna have lots of babies. No, he made it pleasurable. In fact, the Apostle Paul says absolutely nothing about having babies in this chapter. I'm gonna mention that in a second. Some might say, well, some people are unable to have sex. Some people are not capable. Maybe they're, they're physically unable or they're at an age where uh, they're unable. This does not mean that a marriage where uh, sex is not possible is dead. The point is discover what is best for you to create intimacy. This is the, this is the heart. Of this section here, Paul is basically saying, "Don't use Jesus as an excuse to to deprive your spouse of intimacy." Now, this is a really sensitive issue. I had a guy who um, did our marriage, my wife and I's marriage, and uh, his his name was uh, well. His nickname was Rusty, and uh, he was a pastor on staff, and he gave us this little tidbit of encouragement when we were about to get married. He says, when you're married, he says, have a get a jar and some jelly beans, and every time you have sex, that first year, drop a jelly bean in the jar. And he goes, and then after your second year, remove a jelly bean every time you have sex, and he says, you'll never empty the jar I'm like, what a bummer, man. <laughs> it's like, why are you telling us this? He goes, well, things change after a while. And I'm like, bad news for everybody. You know, you're just, you know, this is not God's design. This is not the intention. Now, sometimes it happens. And so some of you are sitting here, this is just weird and awkward. And, and yeah, it is. But God has something to say about this. Verse 3 and 4, it says, when you're married, your bodies belong to each other. Again, sorry, Nicole. Uh, you're stuck with me. But this is profound because this was a culture where men dominated women. In fact, women were objects. Again, married at 12 and 14 to adult men. They were allowed to be uh, killed if they committed adultery, had sex before they were married. But then, and, and women were just possessions. But then here comes God saying marriage is a mutual relationship of mutual ownership. This was Upside down from everything their culture taught. He says marriage is mutual submission and serving each other. This is powerful. This is really different. All right, verse five. It says, "Do not." Some translators say, "Stop." Do not deprive. The word "deprive" there means to defraud or cheat each other. It says so. Do not or do not deprive or cheat each other of sexual activity. That's what he's talking about. Notice, by the way, sex is not just to make babies here, but to fulfill our God-designed desires. And notice how both men and women are to enjoy it. He says, husbands, you belong to your wives. Wives, you belong to your husbands. It's it's a mutual enjoyment of this. This is, again, everything different from what their culture taught. He says, "Um, do not deprive each other except perhaps by three reasons. Number one, mutual consent and agreement for a time. That means an arranged, uh, a set time, a time limit, and then, or so that you, uh, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That means a spiritual reason. These are the primary reasons. To not have sex with your spouse. Withholding sex is not for punishment. It was never meant to be for manipulation. And it was never meant to be for control. Three reasons. Mutual consent, a designated time period, and to seek God. We're going to come back to that in a second. The second part of that verse says, then come together again. The goal of any time apart is to come back together so that Satan will not tempt you. Remember the three reasons for sex is procreation. Protection, this is it right here, and for pleasure. So come back together, be intimate with each other again, so that Satan will not tempt you. Tempt you to do what? Well, to cheat, to to commit sexual immorality. Sex is protection from temptation because of your lack of self control. He says, um, You need to come back together. You know, you need to make sure that you guys are looking out for each other in this area. Verse 6. The original has a but to it, but he says, verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. What does that mean? That means God is never, ever, ever, ever going to command you to not have sex with your wife or your husband. If someone says, well, God told me not to have sex with my husband, that is a lie. This is not, God would never contradict his word on this. However, God would never command you to abstain from sex in marriage for any reason, any spiritual reason, but there is allowance for it, okay? He says, I'm conceding that there is times when you when you may need to to do this, those three reasons, he says, but this is not a command. This is something God would never say. So there is allowance for it, but it's not a command, all right? Verses 7, and eight, uh, seven 8, and 9 are going to talk about single people, and we're going to pick that up next week. So Here's the next question he focuses on when it comes to marriage, and this is a separation issue. And the question is, to be more focused on God, should we separate from each other? Again, these are new Christians in a crazy culture trying to figure out how to live for Jesus when everything seemed, you know, like really immoral. And So the question is, if if living for Jesus is everything I need to be about, then should I you know, separate from my husband or wife. Is separation ever good if I need to get to know God better? Well, you might see this maybe as a silly question, or maybe this is a question you have, but they were doing it, they were wondering, is it more spiritual to be single? This is what he says to the married people. Uh, verse 10, to the married people. This is specifically to the Christian couples. He says, I give this command, not I, But the Lord, what's that mean? This means this is not, he's not saying that what I'm saying uh, isn't inspired or that this is directly from, you know, the Lord's telling me this. He's saying Jesus already talked about this. In fact, Jesus did talk about it in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. He says, I'm saying this, not just my words, but this is Jesus talking. He says this, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does separate, She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Christians asking, should I get a divorce or separate to be closer with God? The answer is no. But if you do separate, work towards reconciliation. Sadly, this verse is often used to keep women in abusive marriages. I've had people come to me and say my husband's a violent, abusive person, And, uh, you know, should we separate? And I've I've seen pastors pull out and say, no, a wife must not separate, right? And if she does, she needs to get back in that house. That's not what this passage is necessarily saying. If you are in an abusive relationship, you need to get out of that relationship and don't look back. If you are in an abusive marriage, get out and seek help, hopefully with the opportunity to come back. But do not remain ever in an abusive relationship. Get out of that relationship. If you're dating someone who's abusive, don't look back. If it's a marriage, then seek help, and hopefully you can work it out together and come back together. Biblical separations. Remember, Paul just gave us three reasons for separation. And they are this, and they're found in that that verse uh, 5 of chapter 7 there. He says three reasons why the Bible gives concessions for separation. If you're here today and you're having marital problems and you're wondering, should I, should I, get se- should I move out? Should we get separate? Should we get our own place? Well, there's three concessions for separation. The first one is mutual agreement. You both agree that this would be a good thing. Number two, for a set time, for a couple of weeks, for a month, you know, for a time period that perhaps is set by a counselor. I've actually counseled couples to to separate for three months, and at the most, I've said six months, as they work through reconciliation, because the third person, or the third reason is to get your life together and right with God. Because sometimes in a marriage, things are so out of whack, so haywire, uh, so uh, unhealthy that mutually agreed, before they kill each other, they're going to move out temporarily for a set time to get right with God, to get some counseling, but it's all with the purpose, as Paul says, to get back together. That is the goal. It's not the step towards divorce, though sometimes that does happen. The point is to get back together. If you do separate, for one of the reasons mentioned above, he says, don't get a divorce, but work towards reconciliation. Now, I've actually had people tell me. They've come to me and said, well, God doesn't want me to be married to this person anymore. I've actually had people tell me that. I've had people tell me that God brought someone better to me and because I wasn't a Christian when I married this person, but now I am that God is bringing me someone better. Well, they are wrong, and they're not speaking from God at all. God does not recognize such reasons. Christians marriages, uh, Christian marriages, divorcing to pursue God's will will. Let me rephrase that. Christians who get divorced to pursue God, God says, no, you're crazy. Paul says, no, you're crazy. How misguided. So, if Corinth Christians started thinking that singles were more spiritual. Imagine how shunned Christians married to unbelievers felt. So, this is the third thing that he deals with with divorce. And the question is, if I became a Christian and my spouse does not, should I get a divorce? Now, this is a very real and painful dilemma for a lot of Christians today, particularly a lot of women because women seem to be more tender to saying yes to Jesus while their husbands maybe don't come around for a long time and maybe never. And so there's a lot of women that are coming to church alone you know, And their husbands are not a part of the church. And they're not pursuing God. And it makes for a very tense and uncomfortable experience in their home and in their family. Particularly if there's children and they're trying to raise these kids in a Christian environment. But yet the husband is not providing a Christian godly leadership role. And so the church was, the Christians' women were saying, hey, you know, this is such a bad environment. See, listen to this for just a second. Remember the culture they're coming out of. Men. We're absolutely dominating, controlling, sexually active, you know, drunkards, you know, heavy gamblers, wildlife. This is Corinth. This is the Vegas of the ancient world. And these men were living in this world and in this culture. Women were getting saved. It's not like, well, my husband doesn't want to go to church with me. Should I get divorced? They were living in a culture where the husbands were living like hellions, like just insane And the wives were saying, how in the world can I raise a godly family? How can I live for Jesus when my husband is treating me badly, you know, abusing our relationship, having sex with other women, demeaning our daughters, raising our boys to be just like him, drunk all the time? How in the world surely I can get a divorce from that environment? This is what they're asking. Paul has an answer from God, and this is what he says. To the rest, these are mixed-matched couples. The first one was Christian couples who wanted a separation. Now to mixed-matched couples, he says, I say this, I, not the Lord, he's not meaning that, that this is not God-inspired. What he's saying is that Jesus didn't talk about this issue in Matthew. He talked about separation in the other one. He says, but Jesus never talked about mixed-matched marriages Jesus never said, if one's a Christian and one's not, this is what you should do. So he says, Jesus didn't talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it. And he's inspired from the Lord. Remember, he's an apostle of God. His words are given by the Holy Spirit to teach and to train us in these areas and these matters. So he says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, brother in Christ, by the way, that's not like a sibling. If a brother or a fellow Christian has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her if she is willing. Now, they were married to a pagan. And I'm not talking about the Corinthians. I'm talking about the Christians. All of the Roman world saw Christians as pagans. We were the weird ones. We were the cult. All right? We were opposite of every aspect of their culture. And when, they, when you read the ancient writings and, the, and how they talked to Christians, you know what they actually called us? Pagans. See, Roman culture was fairly tolerant of other religions as long as you were polytheistic. That means you worshipped many gods and as long as one of them was the emperor of Rome. But Christians said, no, we worship only one god and we will never worship Rome, or the emperor, and and these other deities. So they saw Christians as weird, bizarre, anti-community, and they saw them as somebody that was dangerous to their culture and unhealthy for civilization. So they hated Christians for the primary reason that they saw them as groups of people that were destroying the culture of Rome. So we were the pagans. We were the ones that were looked down on opposite of everything. And so if this non-Christian is willing... To be married to a a Christian, then he said, "Then, then, then don't get a divorce. He says, verse 13, and if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Again, remember, women were expected to worship the gods of their husbands. This is a culture that whatever the husband worshipped, the wife was to worship too. So here comes a woman who gives her life to Jesus, and she says, I can't worship those deities. I worship Jesus, God alone. And if the husband is willing to allow her to live for Jesus and not divorce her, and she's not going to divorce him because he's willing to let her stay, then he says, don't get a divorce. So... Why stay together? Why does Paul say, even in a marriage that is difficult and uncomfortable, where your spouse doesn't live for Jesus, why stay together? This is why. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul is not saying that if you're a Christian, your unsaved husband or wife automatically becomes a Christian or is holy in God's eyes. This is what it means. Write this down. Should you get a divorce? No, because your life brings the presence of God into that house. Your life brings God's presence into that house. He says that situation does not make marriage impure. Because this is something God says is holy. And even if your husband is not a Christian, that's still a holy marriage. That's still a relationship that gave birth to children that is righteous in God's eyes. He says, you, because you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are the temple of God. Check this out, guys. This is for everybody, whether you're married or not. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And everywhere you go is holy. You go to work. You go to school. You go home in that crazy environment at home. You are the holiness, the righteousness of God in Christ. You are the temple of God. And wherever you are is the temple, is the holiness of God. He says, listen. If your family is a family filled with people that are not Christians, when you are there, you bring God's presence into that house simply by being there. You are set apart for a purpose. Tragically, early Christians were guilty of leaving their spouses. One of the great heathen complaints was this I'd read this this week is that one of the first charges brought against Christians. In the early Roman church is, quote, they were tampering with domestic relationships. Christians were known, unfortunately, to bail on their lost husbands and wives. Paul says, don't do that. You're bringing God's presence into that home. You make the home holy, set apart for a purpose. Well, the question is, what if they leave me? And some will. This is what he says. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound to the marriage. In such circumstances, God has called us to live in peace. That means don't be difficult, don't be vengeful, don't be hateful about it. Just be released from that bondage and that commitment. There's two allowances for divorce in the Bible, just two, and they're given By Jesus and here by Paul. And these are the two allowances, two you might say, escape clauses. And the first one is any sexual immorality. In one passage, Jesus says adultery, in the other one, he uses the word pornea, which is immorality, which is any sexual activity outside of marriage. That's a big umbrella. There's a covenant relationship where sex is very, very, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It is a righteous, special, beautiful place, sex and marriage. When you, when you mess with God's design for men and women in marriage, sexual immorality occurs. Jesus says, except for sexual morality, don't get a divorce. Paul adds another, dealing with this issue of an unbeliever, and he says this, abandonment or desertion. He says, if the person leaves you, you're not bound to that marriage anymore. These are the only two reasons that the Bible gives for divorce. Some people say, what about addiction? What about violence? What about abuse? Well, the Bible does give scriptures on that. And and again, I want to clarify, the Bible uh, says very clearly that if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to get out of that relationship. You need to get out of that relationship. You need to seek help. Don't entertain. Don't coddle. Don't participate. Don't put yourself or your children in an environment where abuse is happening. Get out of that relationship. Work towards reconciliation. But at times, a spouse will leave or a spouse will commit sexual morality. And that's when God, through Jesus and through the Apostle Paul, says these are two allowances, sexual morality and desertion. Or abandonment. Again, these are allowances, not requirements. That means if your husband or your spouse, uh, your wife, has committed sexual immorality, that is an allowance but not a requirement. That is permitted but not a command. You know what that means? That means God, and I've I've sat in counseling sessions where couples have had adulterous relationships and God has healed them and restored them. And what the enemy meant for evil turned into something powerful, that bonded them together in a way that they never imagined, just because it happens, don't write off the marriage. Just because it happens, don't give up on it. If you have a spiritually mismatched marriage, should I get a divorce? The answer is no. Stay together if you can, even if it's rocky. Rather than asking is blank a ground for divorce, ask is blank a ground for forgiveness, restoration, and counseling. So a couple of big ideas, I'm just going to give them to you real fast, just fill them in, in the blank. There's a couple of things to think about as we leave here today based upon this passage. And number one is there is nothing wrong and everything right about sex in marriage. All right? The enemy, Satan, works hard to get you to have sex before marriage, and he works hard to get you to stop having sex after marriage. Think about that. That is the truth. The Apostle Paul says you should have these relationships. You should participate in them because it protects you against the attacks or the temptations of the enemy. Satan works hard to encourage sex outside of marriage and to discourage sex within marriage. Don't buy the lies. Sex is beautiful. It's in God's design. Married people, you have an assignment this week, two of them. Number one, talk to your spouse about sex. And number two, figure out what you need to do about that. Alright, so, so I'm gonna say about that. Do do marriage stuff this week. All right. Here's the second thing: God hates divorce because he loves you. And this is at the heart of, of all of the scriptures. Even under the allowances for divorce, God hates it. And it's not because it ruins a picture of, of, of God and us, it's not because he loves the institution so much it's because he loves you so much he hates divorce because he loves you even under the allowances he hates it because it hurts you and he hates this because it hurts you he's not anti you when he says don't get a divorce he's anti divorce because he's pro you. God loves you more than the institution of marriage, which is the next thing I want you to write down, is that divorce is not the unforgivable sin or even close. It's not even close. The church has been so guilty of of demeaning and belittling people who have gone through some of the most painful experiences that that a person can go through. There's nothing more beautiful than love and nothing more painful than lost love. And he says, why are we treating people so bad because they've experienced so much hurt used to belittle and subjugate people? There is forgiveness and a new beginning regardless of your past. Maybe you did it all wrong. Maybe you got divorced when you shouldn't have or got in a relationship that you shouldn't have and you, you... You didn't reconcile and it ended badly and and you're still hurt over it. Listen, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's grace is powerful and able to restore you, to restore heart, and to renew a life. Actually, this comes up next week again. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ sees a new creation, old things have passed. Behold, all things are new. That's for you if you've ever gone through a divorce. Here's the next thing. Write this down. Is it never sacrifice your marriage for ministry? Remember, these people were asking, should I get a divorce to pursue God? No. That is crazy. That is asinine. That is a big, huge, you're out of your mind. No. But it happens every day. Ministers, leaders, church people who sacrifice their marriage, who sacrifice their kids for, quote, God. I see it in the Christian church all the time with pastors who lose their family, lose their marriage, lose that relationship because they're focusing on the ministry of God. Listen, Some in Corinth were willing to sacrifice their marriage, quote, to pursue God. This happens all the time. Paul says, shame on you. No. That is a sad thing to do. Heed the words of Paul and Jesus. You have a gift sitting next to you or at home that's your spouse don't sacrifice them for ministry. And the last thing is this, never give up on your spouse. God can use you, even in a difficult marriage, to introduce them to Jesus. Don't lose hope. In fact, Paul ends this section with verse 16. And this is what I want to end with and pray right now. Verse 16, he says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Listen, you have no idea how God can use you. Don't give up. On your husband Don't give up on your wife. And by the way, this verse is not about dating, this is about marriage. Keep praying, keep trusting. Keep being a light in your home. Next week, we're going to look at these challenges a little bit more and what it means for those of you that are single or single again. All right, tough talk, Good talk. Again, two sons for the married folks this week. Talk about sex. Soon, tonight, maybe, today, while you still can, while you still have the courage. And uh, number two, uh, come to an agreement what you need to do, and whatever you do, do it with all your heart. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much, God, for the, for the word of God that, that deals with every area of our life. And God, I know this is a sensitive issue for some, and it can be discouraging for others, But, God, thank you, Lord, that there's healing for those that have been divorced. There's hope for those that are separated. And, God, for those that are married, God, there's a renewed romance that's possible. God, and I just pray that you'd give us guidance on these areas and led by your spirit and guided by your word on how to live these out. In Jesus' name, amen.